Well, last week we finished Isaiah 60, and that ended with the restoration of Jerusalem. Back in verse 19, the sun shall be no more light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, and so forth. So that obviously is speaking in terms of revelation, new heaven and new earth. So now as we get down to 61, we change subject. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Let let me stop there for just a minute. Obviously, you all recognize this, that Yeshua read this passage in Luke 4.16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And of course, you all noticed that those two don't sound alike. I mean, they sound alike, but they're not the same. So the idea here is he is probably reading from the Septuagint. And the differences are in the New Testament reading, he is anointing me to proclaim good news to the poor, whereas bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and in the Tanakh, it is, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. So we have good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted and then proclaim liberty to the captives. Whereas in the New Testament, it's just proclaim good news to the poor and proclaim liberty to the captives. So the binding up the brokenhearted is not in the version he read. Then, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the recovering of sight to the blind is not in the Tanakh version. So there are some differences between the two versions. In the Tanakh, he is sent to bind up the brokenhearted, and in The Luke version, he proclaims recovering of sight to the blind. Not sure what the significance of those differences is. Back to Luke now. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. He said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he is referring back to Isaiah, the prophecy. And he is saying that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. One of the things that I have probably Chuck Missler, since he's one of the first ones I listened to on this years and years and years and years and years ago, is the fact that he stops at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is the beginning of verse 2 in Isaiah 61. And that sentence goes on, and the day of vengeance of our God. So... He stopped short of that. 
And if you are a Christian, as I am, what you see in that is he is talking about his second coming. So the idea that he is not there at his first coming to declare the vengeance of the Lord, that will be at his second coming. And then to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The idea there is it is a sign of mourning to sit in ashes and put ashes on your head. So the idea of giving you a beautiful headdress instead of ashes on your head goes right along with comforting all those who mourn and so forth. So the idea there being, of course, that those in Zion are mourning because Zion has been oppressed or destroyed, depending on the time frame we're talking about. And one of the things that he will do when he returns is restore that. And I would expect that probably the Jews regard the fact that he didn't do that as an indicator that he's not the Messiah. The comment was that Galen says she has studied this, and he is the only one who gives recovering of sight to the blind. And regarding that then as a messianic sign, and those who can do that, or the one who can do that, is in fact truly the Messiah. And as I say, I haven't looked up the Septuagint. Now I'm very curious. Let's go look. I've got the Septuagint here in front of me now. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. So the Septuagint does have recovery of sight to the blind. To declare the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of recompense, to comfort all who mourn, that there should be given to them that mourn in Zion glory instead of ashes, the oil of joy to the mourners, the garment of glory for the spirit of heaviness. They shall be called generations of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for glory. So he is obviously then reading from the Septuagint. Anyway, the whole point of the exercise here is this is obviously a messianic prophecy. Yeshua reads verses 1 and the first half of verse 2 and says that that is fulfilled at his coming. The rest of it, I believe, as do most Christians, is reserved then for his second coming. So verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. I see that as the return of Israel to the land, because remember at the end of Isaiah 60, he is talking about the new Jerusalem. So you have two restorations there, one being Jerusalem and the other being the rest of the land. Verse 5, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. What he's talking about here, obviously, is Israel taking its place as a nation of priests. You remember in the Torah, the priests and the Levites don't have an inheritance. The priests and the Levites are supported by the other 11 tribes 
and their job is to minister to the Lord. So the idea of strangers tending your flocks, foreigners being your plowmen and vine dressers, is very much in line with the idea, and this is Johnnyology now. You don't have to buy this if you don't like it, but I like it, so I teach it. In the new heaven and the new earth, the nations will continue to exist. It says so in Revelation 21 or 22. The nations will continue to exist and that Israel will be in the new Jerusalem. They will then be, the way I describe it, is analogous to the priests and the Levites who are in the center of the camp with the other ten tribes arrayed around them. Well, now that will be popped up a level, so Israel entirely will be in the New Jerusalem in the center, and the nations will then be around them in the same way that the ten tribes are around the tabernacle. It does not say that in Scripture. This is Johnnyology. This is just what I think. But in Revelation, it's very obvious that the nations are still there and Jerusalem has got gates with the 12 tribes and all that kind of thing. So it seems to me that camp in the wilderness becomes then the model for the new heaven and the new earth. And what the prophet is saying here, where he says, strangers shall tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, is the Levites and the priests don't have any farmland. They have cities of refuge, but they have no real farmland. So they are supported agriculturally by the ten tribes who give a tithe to support the priests and the Levites. What I'm seeing here in verse 5 through 6 is setting up of things as God has always intended them to be. As I say, it's genealogy, buy it or not as you choose. Verse 7, instead of your shame there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. You've all been around this long enough that you recognize a double portion is what comes to the firstborn. And God says at the time of Exodus that Israel is his firstborn. And what the prophet here is saying is when everything is set up the way God intends for it to be set up, Israel will have a double portion, which is their due as the firstborn. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. What is their recompense? He says, I will faithfully give them their recompense. They've gone into exile, and God sent them into exile. But God has used Gentile empires to take them into exile. But other points in the prophecy, God gets grumpy with the nations because of what I call unnecessary roughness. God whistled them up and sent them into exile, but the enthusiasm with which they did it and the way they were treated in exile made God unhappy. And so in various places in the prophets, to include Isaiah, he says, okay, I am going to take vengeance on the people who mistreated you when you were in exile. So what I'm suggesting the recompense is here is they will be recompensed for the excessive roughness, if you will, 
that occurred to them in the exile. Just as when they came out of Egypt, they went and plundered the Egyptians, and the Egyptians voluntarily gave them wealth as they were on their way out. What is being said here is when they return and everything is restored, that same process will play out again. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You know, being clothed with the garment of salvation, that again goes right into Christian theology. In fact, we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago in Midrash, where you had the great banquet where the rich man goes out and scoops up everybody because his invited guest didn't show up. And as he's going through the feast, he sees this guy without a wedding garment and gets really grumpy and has him thrown out and bound and all sorts of nasty stuff happens to him. The idea here is the garment of salvation is something that is given to you, not something that you create. So he has clothed me with the garment of salvation, not I have made a garment of salvation or anything like that. And of course, that goes to the whole business of work salvation and salvation by grace and, and all of that is bound up in that phrase. And the idea of righteousness and praise sprouting up before all the nations, one of the things that happens in Jewish theology, rabbinic theology, is that in the new heaven and the new earth, free will will cease to operate. The reason it ceases to operate is because there's no reason for it anymore. This is now rabbinic theology. The idea that we have free will on the earth because that's the only way you can then freely choose to follow God. And Christians believe that too, or at least those of us who believe in free will who are non-Calvinists. So what they're saying is, once we get into the new heaven and the new earth, and we've had the circumcision of the heart, and the Torah is written on our heart like it's supposed to be, instead of on tablets of stone, which is out of place, once all that happens, free will ceases to be important because you have made the important choice for which free will was created. Now, all that is by lead up to 6111. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden caused what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now, remember in King Jimmy, before is often in opposition to. In other words, you stand up before someone, that means you're in their face. That's the way it's used in King James. I don't think that's the sense here. And the thing I don't know is the circumcision of the heart, the new covenant, etc., the writing of the Torah on the heart, I don't know if that applies to the nations. I just don't know the answer to that. And the way this is said is if Israel is performing its intended function, which is to be a nation of priests to the nations, I could see the sense of this being the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. What that would mean is Israel has had its heart circumcised 
Israel is righteous, Israel then goes out and promulgates that righteousness to the nation. Now, I could be entirely wrong on that, okay? I am not hinging anything on that. And the reason I say that is, as I read Revelation in the new heaven and the new earth, everybody there has made it past the lake of fire, which in the Baptist sense means that they are saved. Not that there's anything wrong with the Baptist sense. I'm, simply, I'm using that as a technical term. I am not speaking derogatorily of Baptists. In the Baptist sense, once you're past the lake of fire, you are saved. So I'm not sure what's going on here. I can see it as Israel then carries righteousness and praise to all the nations, or everybody in the new heaven and the new earth just does that. I can see that either way. I'm going from hints at the end of Revelation. I don't have great big swaths of scripture that point you inexorably to that. So my understanding may not be correct. And once you make it past the lake of fire, you'll figure it out, whatever it is. Getting past the lake of fire is the big thing. Once you get past that, you, you can figure the rest out. And I'm, I'm just speculating here. It really doesn't have a lot of practical application as far as I can tell. All right, moving along to Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Now, I don't know if this is a continuation of the same thought that we had in 6111, or if this is a new thought. Could be either one. So let's start back in 6110 and read it in a swoop and see if it makes sense. So 6110, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. I can see that as being one thought. So when it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord back in 6110, and then for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And the idea is the nations are going to see your righteousness, Zion's righteousness, Jerusalem's righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And I can see that as the new heaven and the new earth where there are no streetlights because God and Yeshua provide the light. The other metaphor is the shining city on the hill. We're not talking about a city that is just polished up. We're talking about one that actually radiates light. The comment was that marking on the scroll is there's a break between 61, 9, and 10, and then the next break shows up at 62, 9, between 9 and 10. So the idea of this all being one thought is a reasonable idea. So the idea here is that Jerusalem and Israel are going to be a nation of priests, light unto the nation, source of righteousness and praise. And of course, 
one of the primary functions of a priest and a Levite is to praise. In the temple in Jerusalem, one of the things that David did is he sets up the Levites as courses of singer. So one of the jobs of the Levites is to sing praises in the temple. So the idea here that Israel, in my little model that I had of the new heaven and the new earth, Israel then becomes the ones who sing the praises of God to the nations from Jerusalem. So pick it up at 62.2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be determined desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. And of course, that's Hephzibah and Beulah. You've all heard the old black spiritual Beulah land. Because in King Jimmy, my delight is in her is Hephzibah, and your land married is Beulah. So the old black spiritual going to Beulah land. Great, great song. Hephzibah and Beulah are the Hebrew. My translation goes ahead and translate them, which is, my delight is in her is Hephzibah, and your land married is Beulah. And in King James, they are left as Hephzibah and Beulah. Hence, the Negro spiritual. And the other one is, verse 4, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. The idea there, of course, is the land will get back her people. You've all been through the drill that at the Jubilee, it isn't the people get back land back, it's that the land gets her people back. So the land is very much an active part, if you will, of the restoration. And when Paul says the whole creation is groaning and waiting, what we're talking about here is the land doesn't have its people. And so the land is groaning for lack of its people. So anyway, let's pick it up at four and get all the way to nine, maybe. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. What is going on there, I will suggest, if you go back to Deuteronomy, where it says that you will no longer see him until you proclaim Baruch Abba Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The point is that as Israel is in exile, she is to keep praying for restoration. And her prayers should never cease until God does restore her, which speaks to me of persistence in prayer. There's a school of thought that if you pray it once in faith, you're done, and if you pray it again, that means you must not have met it the first time. And I don't think that's quite correct. The idea of, of course, when you pray it, you pray it in faith, 
And what you're doing then is you're planting seeds. And you should only plant a seed once. You don't go out every day and dig the seed up and check to see how it's doing and put it back. Okay, once you plant it, you leave it. The point is the prayers that you utter over the same subject subsequent to planting the seed are by way of weeding and watering the garden. Once you set a seed in motion, you have to defend it because otherwise weeds will come or it will dry out and the plant will die. I mean, all sorts of things can happen between the time a seed is planted and you collect a harvest, and that's tending the garden. So when you plant your seed, you say what it is your petition is before the Lord, and you say that, and that's planting the seed. Thereafter, you pray in praise and thanksgiving that he is working on the seed. He's watering and weeding and germinating and all that kind of stuff, and there's stuff that's going to happen between the planting of the seed and the harvest of the fruit. And your job is to tend that garden plot, to keep it from drying out, being forgotten, keep weeds from springing up, doubt, unbelief. And so what you're doing when you continue to pray is you're not nagging him, what you're doing is you're tending this thing you've planted. So you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine, for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it, and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. So the idea is you're building a highway to Zion here. So the idea of going through the gates and preparing the way for the people, I am suggesting can go either way. It is possible that this is Israel going out of the gates and preparing a way for the people to come to Jerusalem, as in a feast of ascent. Because in national Israel, you have the tribes all over the land, and you have the priests and the Levites preparing, if you will, for the rest of Israel to come up for the feast. So I could see this as being Israel in its role as a priestly nation, then preparing the way for the nations to come up for the feast. Because we know that in the millennium at least, the nations that don't come up to Sukkot will receive no rain. Pick it up at verse 10 again and go to the end of the chapter. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. So this could be new heaven and new earth stuff could also be millennial kingdom stuff. Works either way, although there are things in there that hint strongly to me of new heaven and new earth, but I'd certainly be talked out of that. I'm not gonna start on 63. 